even when I was a teenager, I was reading spiritual texts. It's like, I think I was always on a quest to search for my dharma. And I didn't know even what the word meant or what I was doing. I don't even know if I understood the text, but I was always very curious. I would always go to different religious places with friends, if they were in church, if they were Jewish, if they, I would just be like, I just want to go. I just want to experience it all. I really was always like questioning what I'm here in this body in this lifetime to do. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. Today's guest is my final South Asian author for the series. I mean, I'm sure I will be interviewing many South Asian authors in the future, but at least for now, before our fall series begin, this is my fifth and final author. Today, I interview Nilu Kaur, who is, of course, an author, a facilitator, a NLP and executive coach, and a wellness and burnout management expert. And I was eating it all, man. Whatever she was saying, I was like, uh-huh, exactly, yep, that's me. Nilu combines leadership development, neuro-linguistic programming and burnout management and offers her clients a hybrid of research-based professional development combined with the wisdom of yoga and Ayurveda, which of course was my favorite part. Her book, Be Your Own Cheerleader, is an Asian and South Asian woman's cultural, psychological, and spiritual guide to self-promote at work. Guys, this book is awesome. Everyone needs to read it. Even if you're not in a corporate environment, it's just a great guide on how to promote ourselves because guess what? A lot of us have problems doing that, including myself. So I hope you guys enjoy my interview with Nilu Kaur. How are you? Where are you at right now? New York home. New York home. Okay. And, yes. you, and you've been there. I've been there. I've been here for a long time. For a long time. Okay, well, let's get right to it. I did my research on you, which is Google. And then, you know, LinkedIn is my first thing. Yes, that's where I'm most active. Read the book, loved every part of it, which will go. I have my questions for you on that. You're slashy, right? Like many of our guests now. You're an author, a facilitator, NLP, and executive coach, wellness, and burnt out management expert. I was like, yes, everyone. I love the slashy. I've never heard that. Yeah. Actually, I'm sure you've heard of Brown Girl Magazine. They have a summit now every year called Slashy Summit. You should be a speaker on there. So it's thrown out there. Yeah. They they throw it every year. It's, It's focused on brown women. You fit right in. I would love That's it. That's kind of your jam. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I would reach. I mean, I think I in, did a little interview with them. It wasn't a podcast. They were going to write an article. So I'll right. reach back out. Reach back that out. You should be part yeah. of that. Su- I mean, there's so many great summits now, but they, they definitely do some fantastic work. Okay. So I know you're focusing on leadership coaching, corporate education, employee wellness programs. So not just helping individuals but teams now be more productive. Yeah, actually, I, individuals has always been my second. Like, that's not the main That's your second. Part of, Got yeah, it. Okay. Like, maybe it's the third. Got it. Like, <laughs> yeah. So I think groups and then speaking engagements and then individual coaching. I'm trying to get a little bit further away from the individual coaching, not because I don't love it, but I just would rather do more um, scalable, high impact type of work. Yeah, no, understandable. So quick question. You combine leadership, leadership development NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. Explain it to me in a couple sentences. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of Tony Robbins. He kind of is 
the father in some ways of putting NLP out there. However, he has taken his own spin on it and has done different things to it. So I'm always the type of person that loves to go to the source. So NLP is a communication strategy that allows you to become a master communicator, not just with yourself, but with others. So for example, for me, the way I describe it is you don't expect people to meet you at your bus stop. You're always flexing to meet them at their bus stop. And there's techniques that you use to help yourself deal with limiting beliefs, but also then communicating more effectively. That's why NLP is used a lot in sales conversations and influencing and building rapport. And so there's strategies that you can use, but ultimately it's a communication strategy for improving your inner dialogue as well as how you communicate with others. Okay. Very well said. And then of course, the unique aspect to your, I don't know if you want to call it a program or, or guidance or, you know, how you approach your, your clients is that you do weave in the Ayurveda and the yoga. I, you know, I'm Indian, Indian American. My mom is Ayurveda all the way. It's been part of our DNA since we were kids. And that offers that unique Perhaps that third chapter of your book, the spirituality part of it, which was my favorite part. That makes the whole program unique, right? I, I, there's a lot of coaches out there. There's a lot of burnout management kind of guides out there. But I love, love the fact because I am positive. I am sure that spirituality is the third pillar for everyone in whatever way that means to people. It's so interesting you incorporated that without it being religious, right? Because it's not about that. So talk to me about you going into a corporate meeting, a summit that you do, what can in general people expect? And then the other question I had, and you kind of answered it because I thought maybe you do more individual clients. Whenever you do work with in individual clients, do a lot of South Asian women actually approach you? Is it easy to get South Asian or Asian women? Because I feel like that's kind of, it would be a little bit of a struggle even though someone something I would need, I don't, and I know you would be amazing at it. I don't know if I would reach out to you. Yeah, absolutely. And you are not the only one. It is. And so that's usually what happens for me is I will go into organizations in a facilitator capacity and I'm working with groups and teams. And then through that experience, there are Asian women that then reach out to me afterwards. And typically when it's self-sponsored, they have this notion that it's taboo or there's something wrong with me if I'm seeking a coach. So if it's self-sponsored, it, I usually don't. But if the company actually allows them to have an executive coach, that's really where it happens. Or I'm also part with, of organizations like Chief, which is for C-suite women. And then I coach Asian women there, right? So it really depends. But I've noticed this complete thought process of just a complete halt when it comes to coaching, when it comes to therapy, any sort of assistance with your mental well-being, there is there's definitely a block. Yeah, because I'm just thinking about myself. This podcast, and I'm sure you've heard it on on interviews, is my has become my therapy session. I don't know if I would have reached out to anyone, even though I I'm well aware I need it, like we all do. And I I do wonder, what is that block? Is it because I don't want to spend the money or it's not worth my, worth my time? Or because I don't have a problem finding or I want to raise my voice, right? I want to find my dharma, my essence, like I talked about in my last interview. But something about finding a coach for it doesn't feel like it's something I would do. And it's, it's just, it's interesting. Would you pay for a therapist? Yes. Is that because your, your insurance would likely cover it? 
I think it's something, it may be as simple as the terminology of a therapist versus mm -hmm. a coach. Thinking that a therapist will help you more psychologically as well. And not that coaches don't do that. Coaches do as well. But maybe it's just the understanding of what coaches do. So to me, and this is how I describe it, therapy is like looking in a rearview mirror where you are dissecting and analyzing your past. And coach is really focused on this moment and going forward. And I usually work with people about work. And in, we are in a society where we spend most of our time at work. So how we are at work is really how we are at home. So it kind of becomes, I guess I, I put this in quotes, a, you know, a therapy session, but it's really more around focusing on your well-being at work, which who doesn't want to be feeling more mentally well at work, which is where we are most of the time. So it always makes me chuckle when someone says, I would go to therapy, but I wouldn't work on, you know, having assistance in making my workplace better for me or for me to feel better at work. Yeah, and it's silly because I think, and it's not like I, I, I know I would need it. It's just maybe something that hasn't been part of our DNA for a long time, right? Especially as a South Asian woman. So rewinding back, when you go, you know, into into the corporates and you and you have your talks, what can people expect? Just some basic points. I use a principle that comes from adult learning, which is to create psychologically safe experiences. You know, as adults, we learn using experience and kinesthetically learn. So after every five to seven minutes of content, there's some sort of experience. And since COVID, most of my work has been over Zoom. So I have a whole tech team that makes this a very well-orchestrated experience where there's breakout rooms. And so I am teaching you research and I will use concepts from Ayurveda in most instances. In the beginning, I won't say this is Ayurveda. I will say these are holistic practices. And then some people say, okay, what is it, right? And then I'll go into more detail. But ultimately it's learning things, whether it's how to be a better communicator at work or it's how to manage your burnout, but it's through the lens of, I'm gonna create these psychologically fun learning experiences for adults because adults don't have fun. Right. Don't yes. have fun enough. Yes. We, <laughs> yes. we forget. We forget how to have fun, which is really key. And I, know, and I know you wrote about that in the book. We'll get to the book, but you also write out uh, what you call deliberate practices, which is so what we all need. And I mean, especially Americans, they're like, okay, how do I do this? How do I execute yes. this stuff? So <laughs> right. that's, it's really key that you did that for each chapter. So I know you gave some great examples in the book uh, of, of women for each kind of chapter for, uh, of women who have used the practices you've, you've talked about. Any recent examples of a client, obviously you don't say any names, but a client that you have seen come to you with whatever problems or, or obstacles they're facing that has turned their life around professionally? I'm thinking of one person in particular. She used to have severe anxiety attack on air. She was an anchor on air and she was a referral to me. Normally I would never be in sort of the TV anchor world, but she came to me. And then after that, so many others came to me because I really helped her assess whether it was the right scenario for her. So she decided it wasn't. And she did a complete career change and went into marketing and now is very senior at a, at a cosmetics company and she's doing great. And she does do on air things, but it's by choice and it's not sort of her day job. Right. So she had to find the right balance for it, really, and not yes. be, which is kind of key, because at the end of the day, I feel like a lot of it is just the slight changes, right? You know, you're in the right arena, but maybe not in the right way. And to that point, she thought that she needed to deal with 
the current situation and she had panic attacks. So it was like, let me deal with these panic attacks so that I can be on air versus thinking about, I have panic attacks. Let me deal with the panic attacks and find my dharma, which may not be being on air all the time. Right. No, totally. So then I'm curious because you've worked with so many clients. Are there any fundamental differences you see with South Asian, Asian women versus other women? Absolutely. And I think my book speaks to it is that we in general do not advocate for ourselves. We do not know how to advocate because of the fact that for most of us, I mean, I was born in India, raised in the US. My parents are immigrants and it was keep your head down, just do your work. Don't stick out. This isn't our country. My parents would actually say, this is not our country, so don't stick out. Right. So you are taught from a very young age, whether verbally or this behavior is modeled to you, that you just don't want to stick out. So when you get into corporate America, if you don't stick out, you will get ruined. (laughs) You will get fired, which I've been fired numerous times. I've been downsized numerous times. I probably could wear like a badge of honor of how many times I've been fired, downsized. And it's simply, and I truly believe it wasn't because I didn't have brilliant ideas or I wasn't a good employee. It was literally because I could not self-advocate. I did not know how to be my own cheerleader. Right. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I do feel like it is a woman problem, the whole imposter syndrome self-advocacy stuff. But I, and I, I assumed with Asian, South Asian women, it was going to be a little bit worse in terms of, of trying to promote the I versus the we, like you say, but just wanted to confirm that that was actually true. Cause you know, a lot of us, I was born here, right? So I definitely identify as Indian American, but American more than anything else. And even someone, and we'll, I want to definitely get to your childhood, but even someone like me who was born and raised here in the States with, you know, America's always I, 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 you know, about promoting yourself, but how much of the, the cultural impact we all have, no matter where you are born, it makes such a big, big difference, you know? What was surprising to me was I really thought that it was an issue just for Asians and South Asians based on my experience, based on women I've coached, but I've also had clients in the past and even now who are men who are not Asian, not South Asian, they could be extreme introverts yeah, or they could be neurodivergent and they just don't know. They just want to stay under the radar and not stick out in any way, or they, they just don't feel comfortable sticking out in any way. So it actually applies. I think I've gotten a lot of feedback since my book has been out this year about how it's actually applied beyond sort of this cultural lens. That's awesome. Were you surprised by that? I was so surprised by it. I really thought like when I was finding the publisher and the literary agent, the idea was that if you were a manager and you're a tall white man, you would manage women and manage Asians and South Asian professionals. And so this is a book that would help you manage them better and also be helpful if you are an Asian or South Asian woman. But it didn't occur to me that there would be introverted men, executives that would come to me and say, I actually really benefited from reading this. And I was like, wow, I did not expect you to be part of the target demographic. No kidding. When you talk to men, men of color or Caucasian, whatever, do you approach them differently or use the same principles? You know, it's funny. I do make the assumption that they're already good at this. Okay. And and I and that's just the baseline. I'm like, they've got to where they are in their career because they are good cheerleaders for themselves. But it's not always the case. And maybe it's a learned skill that they didn't have in the beginning of their career. And now they've learned since they've been beaten up in corporate America. And then they're like, yes, now I can do this. But I did not know how to do this when I first started. Got it. That's interesting. Yeah. You just, it's such an assumption, right? We all need to understand that there are People come from everywhere in all kinds of backgrounds, no matter what you look like. And then I know you, obviously you focus on corporate America. What about those that aren't in corporate America, that are entrepreneurs or creatives? I know you said you kind of 
started working with people, like the example of of the woman that was working on air. Are you working more with people like that, like entrepreneurs? I tend to stick to my lane, which is corporate America. I've been, I grew up in corporate America, so that's sort of my thing. And it's usually through word of mouth or referrals that I will get others to coach and to be part of any programs. But typically when I go into organizations, it's for the employees at that organization. And then coaching clients usually come from those workshops. Right, right. Chief, you are a core guide with Chief. Of course, we've all heard of Chief, but talk to me about the organization, the role you have there, and how you got involved. So Chief is for a a women's only organization for C-suite women. So these are very busy professional women, and they come to Chief for an experience. And the experience usually, I mean, it can last beyond a year, but my role in it is to provide monthly meetings to a core group. And so that group meets every month for a couple of hours for the for 12 months or longer. And so I'm a coach and facilitator to groups. And there are cohorts of these groups. That's amazing. So you've been doing this for a year. Yes, I just joined not too long ago. And I'm sure you've heard they've had some <laughs> they've had some media coverage. And so my goal and my mission is always to help people, women of color, feel more comfortable in very homogenous environments. Right, right. You need to do like retreats. I think that would, that would be super fun too. I think so. We have chief meetings regularly about the things that are going on. And I'll look at the Zoom window and it's just me and maybe two other women that are South Asian. There might be a couple of other women of color, but it's usually not the most diverse group. But I know they're working towards changing that. And also when you do have a guide or a coach that is of color, it just allows for more open conversation, I think, in the group itself when they're dealing with aggressions at work or whatever they want to challenge and bring up to the surface. I think it feels more comfortable to do that with someone who could probably relate, even if they're not South Asian. Right, right. Your book? Fantastic. Be Your Own Cheerleader. You divide it into three sections. It's very digestible. I told Sunil the same thing. I love how you guys incorporated the spiritual aspect of it. I know based on Indian philosophies and culture, but made it so easy for those that aren't connected to that. And so I think that's so key and not easy to do, not easy to balance out. So you you divide it into cultural, psychological, spiritual. Like I mentioned, the the I love the deliberate practices part of it because it's something you can actually take away and do. And the stories that you you wrote about different women who have struggled in different areas, I think all of that is key to making any kind of book digestible, right? Having that personal touch to it. I kind of want to go through the three areas briefly, but my favorite parts, and then wanted to ask you what in the cultural aspect, spiritual aspect, and psychological aspect your own journey, and what was most difficult for you to overcome in each of these areas. So for cultural, and I think I've heard this over and over again, it's the idea of not being small, taking up space. Me and my girlfriends tell each other that all the time. And I love that you had that on there and and the way you presented it, making yourself feel like bigger because you are, you are worth that space. And I, that absolutely resonated with me psychologically, the influencing your self-talk, I think is so key because it really does change the outcome of things. And the more you, you do that, the more positivity you put inside yourself, it comes out and the energy comes back to you, right? Which is kind of spiritual too. And then the spiritual part of it, the 
practicing in action between your book and Sunil's book, that was also my favorite part because that's what I'm doing now. I'm practicing in action because with the podcast, it's unlimited. You can go, 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 go. Every week you have to do, pr produce something. Every week you have to do an event. There's just no limit to this industry. And so I've actually decided to not do stuff sometimes and just be and sit with it for a while. And it has helped my mental health so much. So that was my three big takeaways, my three favorite moments, my relatable moments in the book. What about you? What are the three? I mean, I know you wrote the book, so all of it resonates with you, but maybe the struggles you've had in each of those areas. Yeah. I mean, culturally, I think, and I'm sure you can relate to this is just being raised a certain way at home and then going to school and it's totally different or going to your friends' homes and it's totally different. And then going into work and it's totally different because, and I truly believe it's because we are raised in sort of a collective we culture and we're expected to thrive in this I-based, whether it's corporate America or it's just American culture, it's just two polar opposites. And for me, I always noticed that I was felt like I was dancing between the two and I never danced well in either one. And so for me, the we and the I, when I learned about these intercultural dimensions in grad school, that one for me really hit home. I was like, this is summarizes my whole life so far of dancing in these two very different cultures. This is very, very common. It might be the most common thing between all of us, the dancing with the we and the I, and that maybe translates to not feeling Indian enough, Indian enough or not feeling American enough, whatever that means. You know, I feel like those are the two dichotomies that we're all struggling with as we, we are living with our families and, and then moving away from our families and doing our own thing. And still, you know, I don't know if you are married or have kids and I want to get to that too, but it's still something I struggle with. I mean, I had an experience not even that long ago, maybe five years ago, where I was at a grand opening for a pet parlor, like a doggy daycare type of place. And I was invited there and my friend's friend, she's older. She was like a couple of decades older and she's like Italian, you know, from Staten Island. And she looks at my hand and she goes, oh my God, are you really Indian? Cause you're like, you're not like Indian color Indian. And I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, no, you're like, you're just a little bit darker than I am. But like, are you, how are you not white? And I was like, how is this happening in New York city? five years ago. So, and so these kind of experiences to me, I'm just like, wow. Yeah. This is still happening. It's still happening. In just a different way. Yeah. I yeah. think maybe we're more aware of it now. I, I, or maybe people are just open to talking about that kind of stuff. Whatever it is, it is shocking sometimes. Or just no filter. Yeah. And it's like, I'll just say whatever. And yeah, it was, it was really fascinating to me that this was still happening and that we're in New York City, and why are we talking about skin color, you know? Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. Um, <laughs> so the cultural part. So what about psychological? What has been your biggest obstacle, and have you, how have you overcome it? For me, I used to have debilitating panic attacks, and I've slowly become more open and more vocal about it. But yeah, I used to have them even as a teenager, and I just didn't have the vocabulary to express what I was experiencing. And my parents, I didn't feel safe because in Indian culture and Punjabi culture, in that machismo Punjabi Sikh culture, it's like, there's nothing wrong. Just drink some milk and go to sleep. Shake it, <laughs> shake it off. Shake it off. Yeah. <laughs> shake it yeah. off. And also nothing. Nothing's yeah. wrong. Just yeah. be happy. Yeah. Just be happy and everything will be good. And so I didn't, I really couldn't go to them and say I was experiencing this. And I would literally be in my room and I would just have these, I felt like the way I described it is I felt like I was sinking in quicksand and couldn't get out. 
is this been kind of throughout your childhood and, and adulthood or is it recent or? I think I remember it mostly in like my later teenage years and then early 20s. Huh. What, what, yeah. Do you know, and, like looking back, what set it off or is it just uh, the way you grew up and kind of your reaction to it all? I think both. Like, I think it was feeling that sense of overwhelm where you just get paralyzed when you, when you're so overwhelmed, you don't know what to do. I remember as a teenager, that's how I would feel when I had to study for multiple tests or perform. Like, you know, it was very much about perfectionism and everything. So it was like studying really hard. And then if I have to study multiple subjects at the same time, it was overload for me. And I would just have a panic attack and I didn't even know how to describe it. And then as an adult, kind of the same thing, except it wasn't around studying. It was like just feeling this overwhelm. Like I don't know what action to take. So I'm paralyzed. And then I felt like I would have a panic attack. Wow. So then how were you able to kind of approach that on your own? Well, so my mom has been on antidepressants and antidepressant pills her whole adult life almost. And I know that the, the aftermath of that can be really challenging so I was determined not to take medication for it. And there's nothing wrong with medication if you really need it. But I've seen the side effects over all of these decades with my mom. So I was really determined not to do, go down that path. And so I started delving into anything I could delve into. Yoga, Ayurveda, NLP, Kabbalah, you name it. Anything that would give me, I was a spiritual seeker, like true student. And just anything I would find interest in, I would just dive into it. And so for me, it was yoga. My yoga practice became like my sanctuary. The mat became my sanctuary. Then I realized like what I am on the mat, I can take off of the mat and practice those same skills in real life off of the mat. So yoga was such a huge saver for me. Ayurveda, having those daily routines, you know, knowing what to do when you get overwhelmed. I had no idea as a teenager. And then slowly as I became involved in all of these things and I realized it can help me so much, I can go out there and now help others with these same healing modalities. That's amazing because, you know, obviously when, when our parents have any kind of trauma or we see what they, they have gone through, you can go either way, right? You could go that way. It's easy to go that way. It's, you know, it's been in your family or you go the other way and you figure out the, the help, whatever, whatever that means. Like you said, nothing wrong with taking medication, but you figured out that wasn't for you. I had a quick question then about your mom because, you know, we all, we are Indian and mental well-being, mental health is not a topic that is discussed amongst our parents' generation. Kudos to your mom for taking the medicine, right? Isn't, wasn't that a big deal for her to like discover that she perhaps needed it? I think it was, I mean, she was in such bad okay. condition that it was, there was no other option. Okay, okay. So it was, it was almost to the point where it was it was a catastrophe got or it. multiple like breakdowns. And so medication was the only solution. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, still, I'm just, it's really hard for our parents' generation to accept that, right? And so Absolutely. I'm glad she was able to find that help. And that's the thing when, so my parents, they do speak English, but they definitely can emotionally articulate in Punjabi or Hindi or even Urdu, but not English. So finding therapists, finding a system, a support system is not as easy as it may be now. But like back when we were dealing with this with my mom, it was always a struggle to find like that supportive system that could be there to actually for her to express what she was experiencing. And even now she's like, I don't need to talk to anyone. I'm fine. I'm like, okay. All right. It's just a block where it's like, if I talk and I share these personal things and it means I'm saying something bad or there's something shameful about me or something shameful about my family or something shameful about my children. Yep. 
It's, it's, oh God, it's such a common, like, all 124 episodes. I feel like everyone has said this. And the other thing I think most of us will say is that our parents never talked about failures, whether that is the shame of something in the family, the sh- whatever that means to them. There was never any of those stories told. So obviously for us, failing is not an option or the being able to talk about it, right? So you having those panic attacks is going to happen, right? Because your parents, my parents, none of none of them ever told us, oh, we failed this. This sucked. I was depressed then because we didn't think that was normal. And so it is, that is obviously a very cultural thing. And what about spiritually for you? What, I know you said yoga, Ayurveda has kind of been your savior. I guess you got into it because of your own experience. I'm going to guess your mom's experience with what she's gone through depression, maybe was impetus for starting this path. Yes. And I, you know, even when I was a teenager, I was reading spiritual texts. It's like, I was always searching for something other. I think I was always on a quest to search for my dharma. And I didn't know even what the word meant or what I was doing. I don't even know if I understood the text, but I was always very curious. I would always go to different religious places with friends. If they were in church, if they were Jewish, if they, I would just be like, I just want to go. I just want to experience it all. Something in you. Yeah, something in me. And I remember I was four and I'd say to my mom, what's my purpose? And my mom was like, what do you mean? What's your purpose? Your purpose is to be a kid. Like your purpose is to play. But I really, I really was always like questioning what I'm here in this body in this lifetime to do. Good for you. Cause most of us were not, were not when we were kids. Most of us were just like, what's happening in our lives? And that's amazing. So your book, Be Your Be Your Own Cheerleader, obviously out now anywhere. People can buy it anywhere. Amazon. Yes. Any awesome. yeah, everywhere. Everywhere you can find books. Awesome. Well, I will tell you, I have a big book club in Dallas of South Asian women. And this will be one of our books this year. So Thank you. I, appreciate I, will, that. I will let you know uh, when that happens. I want to talk about growing up a little bit. So I know we talked about your family a little bit, uh, but kind of want to deep dive a little bit more. Born in India. So when did you move here? And then how was your relationship with your parents then and now? So we moved when I was two, my brother is six years older. So he has a lot more memory of the financial struggles of our immigrant life. I knew we were immigrants. I I felt that, but I don't think I felt it as much as he felt it. And so I think, you know, over the years, I think because I had this annulment and my parents were very upset with me many years ago, many of my family stopped speaking to me for a number of years. There was a rocky period with my family. And now I think it's sort of calm down. I think I've, I think they're settled in because this is going to sound awful, but others around them have also, their children have also gotten divorced or annulled or all sorts of things have happened. And I might've just been the trailblazer amongst our group of families for them to feel like, oh my God, our, our children are flawed in some way. And so, yes, it's definitely smoothed out, but we did have some very rough, rough patches for sure. Do you have a lot of family in the U.S. then? Yeah. So my mom's side is mostly here and my dad's side is mostly in India still. Okay. So my parents used to go back and forth like every couple of years. And the influence was just so heavy because my, my dad's family was there. And I remember visiting India and my cousins would think I was the conservative one because I was raised, right? Like I was raised the way my parents thought that they needed to raise us when they came here of to course. the US. They held on to it much tighter. Yeah. Yeah. You get stuck into this like time capsule of their worldview of Indian culture. And then you go back and you t- 
talk to your family and you're like, yeah. oh gosh. I'm like, I know more prayers than you guys do. I'm yeah. like, I'm way more Hindu than you guys are. I mean, I grew up, girl, I went to like Hindu camps every summer. This was my wow. childhood. Yeah. I like wow. looking back, I appreciate it. Love our culture and religion and, and all good. But it was an, an intense upbringing in that way. So very much my parents came here in the 60s, 62 or 63 for school. But that's where they got stuck when they left India. They were 20, 21 years old coming here for grad school. Right. And when we were born many years later, that's what we did. Hindu camps cultural class. I mean, you name, I took Gujarati classes, you name it, girl. <laughs> it's so similar. I grew up going to the Gurdwara every week. And actually, I got to the point where if my parents weren't going, I would say to them, can you drop me off? Because yeah. I want to go. Because it just became this thing where I had friends. Yes, and the that friends. Was the, one, the one place where you don't stick out because all the little kids look like you. No, totally. And yeah. I, I know secretly they wanted me to meet a boy this way through the Hindu camps and through all that. Um, that did happen, but it didn't happen to to the. Uh, it didn't happen in the right way for them. But I was like, yeah, if you're gonna send a bunch of sixteen year old to the Hindu camps, you know, people are gonna have crush. It's gonna happen. But um, I'm sure that was part of the you gotta marry a Hindu guy kind of thing. So you mentioned your brother and him having more of an awareness that your parents were immig- like you guys were immigrants. I'm always fascinated by this because I have an older brother as well. We have talked more and more about how we viewed childhood, our parents. And it's so funny because, I mean, it's completely different. You know, his experience and my experience, even though we were both born in the U.S. and raised in the same household, uh, he has such different points of views, such a different relationship with my parents. And I, I find this very common. Is that the same with you guys? Absolutely. And in Punjabi families, I'm sure it's the same with all Indian families, but in Punjabi families, the son... And the older son is just revered, like God-like. So completely treated very differently. And also now I look at it in the sense of responsibility too, because he's so God-like, because they look to him for everything. There's just a bigger sense of responsibility that he has to them and their well-being. Is he aware of all of it? And is he like, oh, okay. very much so, okay. very much so. And I think the other thing that happened with us is that we had a big age difference. He's six years older. Right. And as adults, six years isn't a lot. But as a child, six years is a lot because you're never really at the same school at the same time. You're never really at the it's same It's totally place. different. Yes, yes. It's totally six different. Six years is like and 20 so, years when you're a kid. Yes. And because my parents came and they were not educated, they came here and had to work numerous jobs. They left a lot of school things to him. So even though he was also learning the school system, he then had to come home and help me with school. And so there was just a lot of anger and he was dealing with a lot of anger management issues. And so it was taken out on me and it wasn't his fault. It wasn't my parents' fault. It was just what was happening because he had so much responsibility. Right, right. And how are you guys now? I would say we never had a relationship with his first wife and now he's married, remarried, and I get along great with my new sister-in-law. And so that actually helps the relationship for sure. Oh my God. Yes. If it weren't, I mean, like I love my sister-in-law and it just, if that wasn't there, it would be way harder (laughs) as you know, I'm sure. And then I have two different answers for this and I'm wondering what yours is. I have sort of a mixed feeling about our culture now. Sometimes I'm angry at it. Sometimes I love it. Just, I think I understand a lot more of it now and trying to take the beautiful parts of it. I was so blinded to it growing up. And I've realized as I get older, like, God, all the Bollywood movies I used to watch in the 90s were so sexist. and They were so like, not healthy for women to watch. And I realized how much 
of that seeped into my brain and my in my core about a role, Indian women role, South Asian women role. So what is your relationship to our culture now versus back then? Yeah, you know, I feel like the way I like to describe it is being a kid in a candy store and just taking the good because there's so much good like yoga, Ayurveda, all of this comes from our culture, even though our families and our relatives probably it's in their backyard. So they take it for granted. Right. So these are things that I say, let's let's embrace. I embrace. And then the patriarchy and the sexism and all of that stuff, I say, I don't want any part of. So I feel like at this stage as an adult, also in my 40s, I, I can choose, pick and choose what I like about the culture and what I can let go of. But I think when you're in your 20s, you're just so consumed by it. It defines you. There's so many cultural expectations, so many societal expectations. And so, yeah, I say right now I feel much more like a much healthier relationship with my culture. Right. You found what works for you. And I think that's what's happening with me. And, you know, I have two kids and and that's my kind of journey right now is to share with them, present to them, guide them to understanding our, our culture in a healthy way. I would love for them to learn about Hinduism and Indian culture, but not to the, to the extent uh, of my experience. So yeah, kind of figuring that out now. I wanted to ask you the last question before we go into the fun fast round. A lot of like someone like me, uh, a lot of South Asian women are working, working from home, part-time. And I know you you focus on corporate, but what's some advice you can give people like me who are kind of hybrid, right? Who want to do well in what they're doing, but also part-time mom. I mean, you know, part-time housewife, whatever you want to call it as well. In terms of mental health or? In terms of from the weed to the eye, mm. especially as a mom. One of the things I say to everyone, despite whether you're at in an office or you're at home or whatever, is at the beginning of the week, maybe it's Sunday night or Monday, it's like actually go through your calendar and take off things. We tend to overcommit, right? So you were in meetings for the sake of meetings. Oh, many of my clients are in meetings for the sake of meetings. So in your instance or other mom's instances who are half at home, half in the workplace, it's like take off things. And then, and I think Sunil mentioned it best, is that downtime where you're not sort of doing anything. There is a therapist or psychologist that calls it time confetti. And it's not, it's these pockets of time that you give yourself. Maybe it's a meeting that got canceled. And instead of saying, I'm going to now vacuum or I'm going to clean or I'm going to pay bills, it's you actually take that time and just really be in the moment with yourself and just let your mind wander, let your mind do what it's going to do and don't stop it from doing that. No, I love it. It's, that's so key. And I've definitely started practicing that. Yeah, there is challenges. There's challenges for every everyone in every role, but the mom thing, doing the I part of it, is, it takes a long time to, to get there. Absolutely. I can only imagine. I don't have children, and it's because I don't think I would be a good parent, and I made a conscious choice that I didn't feel like I had the skill set to be a, a, a good parent. Okay, got it. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I think a lot of us think that way. I'm like, what am I doing? Am I destroying my kids? Oh, my God. It is about taking that time out because, of course, you want to be there for your kids and you want to be there for your, your spouse, your partner, but getting that eye time in whatever way you can, I think, yeah. that makes and sense so for your for life. For some people, it might just be taking a walk. I remember there was this one woman I worked with closely. She was she wanted to quit smoking and she was a mom of three. And we realized through different NLP strategies that the reason she would go downstairs to smoke every few minutes was because she just needed a break yeah. from her three small kids. Yeah. And so when we dissected it, it wasn't really that she would needed to smoke as much. It was just to get a break. Yeah. Did she end up did she end up quitting? 
she actually ended up quitting for a bit and going back to it because she said it's just something that she wants to do. But she was able to bake in more break times for her, which I think helped her with her mental health. Yeah, no, totally. Man, it's so key. Really quickly, actually, I wanted to ask you, I want to make sure we get this part. Your education in uh, path is so interesting. NLP coach, ma master practitioner, yoga teacher, Ayurveda specialist, BS from NYU Stern School of Business, and then an MA in social and organizational psychology from Columbia University. Um, so I always am interested in, in the education part because we are South Asian. When yes. you, when you, I <laughs> know, oh, but quickly, you know, Columbia, NYU, you're, you're, you are the good Indian girl that went to the good schools. Was that always the path for you or your parents were like, why are you doing this social organizational psychology? What is this? Because obviously the school of business makes sense for them, right? And that was what they were able to, they wanted me to do. They said, well, we don't think you're smart enough to become a doctor. We don't think you're <laughs> smart enough to become an engineer. And rightfully so, because I really do suck at math and science. <laughs> so I always say I must be the only South Asian that sucks at math and science. I really suck at math and science. So I understand where they were going with the engineer thing. So my parents were just like, we don't know what you can do because we don't really think you're that smart. I mean, they didn't say it in so many words. So business was the only thing. So my dad was like, okay, I'll pay for that because you could do something after four years. I always told him I wanted to major in psychology. And they're like, well, after four years, what are you going to do with a psych degree? And I was like, well, I want to be a therapist. And they're like, well, you're never going to make it to be a therapist. So it was like, okay, they'll pay for business. And I always knew psychology was just what I wanted to study. So for me, bridging the gap was taking my experience in corporate America as a consultant and going back and studying psychology and focusing on the workplace. Because at that point, it was like, you know, at that time, I was in my early 30s going back to grad school. And I was like, well, I could become a clinic. I could go into the clinical psych path. And that would just be years and years and years before I became a therapist. So I'm going to focus on the mind and the workplace. And that's really what drove me to the program at Columbia. And also it was funny because at the time my dad was like, I don't approve of this. I don't think you're going to do anything with this. And I think it's the worst decision you can ever make. You should be doing an MBA. And I was like, well, I felt like my undergrad was a very stressful MBA that I did not enjoy. And so I'm going to do this. So I ended up taking out loans because I just, it's very expensive to go to Columbia. And now in hindsight, my dad's like, I can understand this is what you love to do. And you're, you're so good at it. So it's, it's fine. So it all worked out. But at the time he was just like, what are you doing? Why are you wasting two years of your life? And cause I went full-time. I'm one of those people that when I commit to something, I like go full-time hundred percent in. So he's like, you're really taking the opportunity cost of all this lost money that you could be making. And it was very like logical. And yeah, he's a businessman. So yeah. It was very, it was monetized. Everything was like monetized. Right. I mean, no, also was, I say this all the time. Our parents are coming from a place of fear, right? So absolutely. it's understandable that he was like, absolutely. what are you doing? And therapy, therapist. I think my parents would even be like, what's, what is that? What, this makes no sense. So I get it from your dad's point of view, but kudos to you. I don't think I would have been that strong. I, I went to law school because I had to do something and it wasn't because I wanted to do it. Right. And it also like math and science, I was like, I barely passed like organic chem. So like, like you, I was like, yeah, the doctor thing is not going to happen. But I knew in my heart that law school wasn't the thing. I knew it. I just didn't have, well, I didn't know what I wanted to do. One, which was the main problem. Maybe I could have pushed it then, but I don't know if I'm sure my dad would have come back to been like, you want to go to journalism school? Like, no. And I, I don't know if I would have been able to push back. Yeah, I was like, I, I did what you wanted me to do and I was miserable. So now I need to do what I want to do and see what happens. So that's really where it happened. And then the reason that I chose like very reputable, great schools was because I knew very young 
uh, that I was always going to be, ba- uh, I was always going to be judged based on credentials, not potential. And there's research about it. If you're a tall white man and you walk into a room, you are measured on your potential. Whereas if you are five, four and a South Asian woman, you are going to be measured on your credentials. So it was very, I knew that very early on that I needed all of the good name brands on my CV. You needed the credentials in order to get judged by the potential, basically. Correct. Right. Otherwise there was, there was no way it was going to be the other way around. So. And I actually don't know if we're, if I'm still judged by potential. I mean, I have colleagues that are doing the exact same type of work I do and they get measured on. There, there's no pushback on fees. There's no pushback on things. So it, it's always a stance that I feel like, and I have tall white men that I go to and I said, what would you charge for this? And they're like, oh, you need to multiply that by three. So it's very interesting to see, but I get pushback and they don't. So there's, and I'm That's more credentialed. So interesting. I am more credentialed. You're still getting pushback. Absolutely. So what do you do then? Do you say, no, fuck you, I'm done? <laughs> it depends on the situation, right? It's like when you're a solopreneur mm-hmm. and- your portfolio is full, you can absolutely say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to not do this. Yeah. Or if you're needing work, then you're like, okay, well, I'll do this. Yeah. I guess what it depends. So where it really you are. just depends on where you are in that moment. Yeah. I'll tell you, Nilu, for me this past year with the podcast, like I'm sure, you know, you know, basics about podcasting, but it's, it's a long journey as a solo podcaster. It takes a very long, unless you're famous already, very long time to build the audience having the marketing capacities to like spread the word, all of it. It's, it's a lot. But I changed my tune on the whole thing the past year. And I was like, you know what? I have a good base. I'm just going to go with the base. I don't, I don't even care about what happens next. And I also decided I'm worth getting paid. And so I stopped doing things, unless it's like a nonprofit or, you know, I want to support them. I stopped saying yes and doing things for free all the time now. And it's, it's kind of a, it's a nice feeling. I've, there's part of me that feels a little bad. I'm like, oh, I should do it. But I'm like, I need to save my energy. Yeah. And I'm, it's worth, I'm worth it. I've proven it credentially after three years of doing it that I, I have the potential to do this more. Oh, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, I've been a solopreneur now for almost a decade. So I remember earlier in that journey, it was like, okay, I'm just going to take this work, which, is, even which though I it's understand. soul crushing, yeah. soul crushing, <laughs> but I will do it. And now I'm like, okay, if my energy is not going the direction I needed to go, I, I don't want to be a part of that. Yeah. And that just started happening for me. Cause I was like, I think I had to get to the point where I felt good enough to do that. And then also part of it is and not in a bad way, but not care passing up certain things. If it doesn't feel right, it doesn't feel right. You know? Yeah. I have a friend, so she funny. always says, what's meant for you won't miss you. Yeah. So I've taken that mantra on daily. I'm like, what's meant for me won't miss me. So if I say no to it, there's a reason I'm saying no and something better is happening. And, for me. and it is nice. The more experience we have, you just, your gut knows. Yeah. You know, I think Absolutely. when you're younger, you're like, yes, yes, yes. And I'm like, I don't think it's going to be worth it. So it's totally right. fine. And if it's not, if it is worth it and I miss it, Guess what? I got to spend that evening with my family. Like right. it's fine. Right. <laughs> Either way, it's fine. So right. love it. Okay. Ready for the fast round? Let's do it. All right. What personality traits are you most proud of? Resilience. Describe yourself in one word. Friendly. What is your biggest pet peeve? Laziness. And this is it. If you have the story, great. If you don't, we can erase. Tell me about an interesting experience that you had recently that you haven't shared? Experience or, or encounter with someone? This is so silly. So I was just in Australia and 
my partner was at work. So we went because he was there for a conference. And so I had a day to myself in Sydney before we went to Melbourne. And so I was just walking and I'm one of those people that just want to, I'm curious and I'm a sponge. So I just want to soak it all up. So anyone that would talk to me, I would talk to them because I just wanted to learn about Australia, the culture. I've been obsessed with the accent since since when I can remember. So I found myself just meandering the streets of Sydney and I end up Googling because I said, oh, I need to get my nails done. And so I went and I found this woman who had her, she was also just a solopreneur. It was just her. And we had the most intense, profound hour together. And I'm never going to see her again. She's probably never going to see me again. But the experience was beautiful. She shared so much about herself. And it was like this instant vulnerable connection between two women that would never otherwise meet on this random day in this random moment. And it was such a heartwarming experience just to bond with someone so deeply in such a short period of time. It's interesting, isn't it? What you, what you can say to strangers. I'm like you, I'm, I'm a sponge and I will talk to people. And I feel like some of the most vulnerable and open conversations are with people I'll never see again. And that's probably why. Right. Right. No judgment. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it's, it's such a you never know what kind of impact that will have on them and vice versa. Uh, yeah. And we both left and she had a mask on because I think there's there were still some COVID protocols. There were more concerned. And so she's like, this was the best hour and you made my day. And I said, same for me. It was the best experience. And it just came out of nowhere. And and take the, you know, the chapter on compliments, which I love too. Like not saying that we have or impacted everyone, everyone in life, but like we have impact on people like be proud of that. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. So how do you want to be remembered by the people around you? A teacher. Who would be your ultimate collab this year? Collaboration? So many. <laughs> I would say. Yeah, let me throw it out there because I've tried my publicist has tried. Like I would love to be part of like Lily Singh's network of her book club because she's got a great book club. I would also this has been a fantasy of mine to just be on a reality business show where I'm the coach and helping people with business challenges. So collaboration on like a Netflix special on helping women in business and I would be the coach. And I think it would be so important for women out there who want to be in business to see someone that looks like them be the coach. Well, we need to talk about this more because I have a vision of doing a 10 episode series based on this podcast. I love that. Using ideas from Letterman's Netflix show and mm -hmm. Jerry Seinfeld's show and, mm. but doing it focusing on South Asian trailblazers. Yeah. So I, I've had, I I've had that out in the world for a little bit. So yeah, I get you. I, I got you, girl. I got it. Yeah, I love that. All right. So this, I and I say this before to all my guests before they answer, family and friends aside, Okay. if it all goes awry, what are your bare bones for happiness? Music and aromatherapy. Love it. Music. Okay. Got to ask quickly, what, what do you like? What do you listen to? I just, I'm again, sponge. There's some music that I just don't it doesn't feel good to my ears like country music. I'm one of those people that would never get into country music, but I love chill music. I love top 40s, like anything that's popular, but just, I love having music in the background. It just makes me happier. Yeah. If I could do anything, any other topic podcasting, I would do a music podcast, like focus on a bit. I have so many ideas, but like, I really want to get into that space and it sounds silly because we were talking about like credibility and, and potential. I just feel like I need to build up the credibility as a podcaster because it's such a saturated space anyways. But man, if I could do a podcast based on like my favorite band mm. or something like that, 
That would be my, I, I went to DJ school in India. So like when we moved there, I got married, we moved to India for three years. I wasn't going to practice law. I was like, I'm not doing this in India. I was, we were in Delhi for the first year and a half. And I was like, I got to do something to figure out my essence, my, what, what, mm -hmm. who am I? Uh, mm -hmm. I was like, all of a sudden I went from like, you know, single engaged woman in New York to married woman in Delhi. I was like, what the fuck is happening? So I went yeah. to, I went to DJ school for four months. I was like, okay, this is like my midlife crisis, my twenties, whatever. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the 20s is absolutely not your midlife. I, I know, yeah. one of them, one of the many. Oh, sorry, I should say 30. I was 30 years old. I love that. How, what an interesting thing to do. Yeah, and then I ended up DJing farm parties all over Delhi because the farm parties are where the rich kids are. So I get paid, paid, you know, a couple hundred bucks, whatever it was. But it was just fun to do. It was insane. It was insanity. I, I would DJ at a, back then it was, we were in India from 2009 to 12. So Arjun Rumpal had a really famous club in Delhi. I think it shut down now. Mm -hmm. So I DJed there a couple of times. It was just so random. Anyways, I, it's always, yeah. music has always been part of like the soul yeah. for me. So Yeah, and aromatherapy because, so scent is my strongest sense. I used to have a line of Ayurvedic essential oil blends. So I got really into mixing and the chemistry around it. Yeah. And then I, I sold that or I got rid of, I basically sold everything I had before a pandemic. So now I realize like for me, aromatherapy is not a business. It's more passion. passion. And so I'm a part of different clubs in New York where we just go around and smell things. Uh, and that sounds awesome. I have a, a yeah. kind of a silly question for you. Yeah. Could you, meeting someone or like even someone like me, could you tell what their scent should be? It's not so much what it should be, but I would be able to tell you what you need. Because from an Ayurvedic perspective, I would say, I think you're, you know, probably a pitavata. I'm just guessing. And if you're a Pitavata, you need more grounding, more calming, right? So based on that, I would create like a mixture for you. And I would say you would need wood, woody scents and also something lighthearted like jasmine. So maybe a jasmine, sandalwood, uh, vetiver combination would be really good for you. I'm just guessing, just looking at you. I, I, don't, I, haven't I, feel, I feel like you're totally right. I'm like, it already smells good to me. I actually, I actually really like that idea. Oh, you know what? I will make you one. I'll send oh. you one. Send me your address. Yeah. I love you. I will make a little customized one for you. Hey, well, uh, listen. It's just something I love to do. Honestly, it's not, I would never go back into business for it. Yeah. But it's just such a passion. I'm part of Sniffapalooza, which is an organization in New York. And we go around and we just go to different apothecary chemistry places, perfumeries, and just smell and let our noses just wander. You know, like we let our minds wander. I let my nose wander and wherever it takes me, I go. Oh my God. This is making me so happy. It's called, <laughs> it's called Sniffapalooza. Sniffapalooza. This is the best thing I've heard all week. This is amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> wow. Oh my so God. I would love you. Who are, yeah. You meet people who are just as passionate uh, with aroma. And so they don't think you're crazy that you're like sniffing everything around. Cause that's just what I do. Tuckered Out is hosted by me, Ami Tucker. This episode is produced by Jeannie Media with Jeannie Saraswathi, Ashley Tuff, Micah Sweetman, Hans Andres, and Laura Radescu. You can follow me at Tuckered Out Podcast on Instagram. And please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcast.